0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The countdown to primary season in the U.S. is on. With just five months to go, security is on the minds of election officials around the country. What's being done to keep bad actors, at home and abroad, from spreading fake news, misinformation, and polarizing content? Katie Harbath runs election security for Facebook. She says the company is taking down fake accounts, speeding up the detection of misinformation, and...
1: There's a lot of work around disrupting bad actors. You know, we talk a lot about foreign actors, but a lot of work, and frankly, a harder question is domestic actors who might be trying to disrupt an election, pretending they aren't who they say they are, also pushing some of this divisive content.
0: Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Special Counsel Robert Mueller made it clear that Russia attacked American democracy when it used cyber attacks and social media to sow division in 2016. America is a free and open society, which makes it vulnerable to such attacks. But what about elections in other countries? What's being done to keep bad actors at bay around the globe? Facebook's Katie Harbath sits down with former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson and former U.S. Ambassador to NATO Doug Lute. Nick Thompson from Wired Magazine leads the conversation. Their discussion was held in June. Thompson kicks it off.
2: What I'm hoping we can do here is talk about the attack vectors on elections, all the way our elections can be manipulated, talk about the most important attack vectors, talk about the most important things we need to do, talk about coordination between the different groups, the different tribes, the different families that we have on stage, and then look ahead towards 2020. One ground rule, we have put a moratorium on relitigating what happened in the 2016 election because I don't want to have to ask Secretary Johnson about that again because he's asked about it a lot. And you can ask about it afterwards, but we are going to look into the future and we are going to solve future elections. So let's get going. Attack vectors. There are many, many ways... That adversaries, foreign operators, can influence our elections. Secretary Johnson, start with you. Please describe your framework for thinking about the different vectors and thinking about the responses.
3: Thank you for that question. Uh, So, I tend to look at the threat around our democracy in three distinct threat streams, as they say in the intelligence community. One is the threat to our election infrastructure cybersecurity, which is frankly what concerned me most in 2016, given what we were seeing, the emerging picture we were seeing of the scanning and probing around voter registration databases in various states. Good news there. I'm going to look backward just a little bit. Sure. As I left office, I designated election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, but before that, in the run-up to the election, we actually convinced over 30 states to come and seek DHS's cybersecurity assistance uh, to identify any vulnerabilities. So that's, that's the good news there. And so far as I know, there were no major intrusions, exfiltrations that altered ballot counts, as far as I know. Two is the uh, exfiltration of emails, data, uh, mm-hmm. like we saw with the DNC, and the weaponizing of it, for use uh, in a political campaign one way or another. And then three, which is the larger area and probably the most difficult problem to solve and fully understand, is the extent to which various bad actors, foreign influences, seek to influence our democracy and our public opinion through misinformation, the, the publication, republication of extremist views, and the like, I believe that we have yet to fully understand the extent to which that had an influence on the 2016 election. And I suspect that going forward, it is the biggest threat to our democracy because as a free and open society, uh, that in and of itself is also our biggest vulnerability.
2: I did just see that Jimmy Carter, a very rare statement saying, you know what, Russia swung the election to Trump, just said it flat out today. Um, Katie, so you are on Secretary Johnson's three-part structure you are totally off the hook on number one Facebook does not run our election infrastructure you're mostly off the hook on number two on the exfiltration of information and spread like DNC stuff spread a little bit on Facebook but you're totally on the hook for number three so tell me about how you think about the most important vectors in the spread of disinformation on social media platforms and tell me the most important thing that you've done since 2016 to limit the threats
1: yeah, so we've, um, we've looked at this across many different vectors because if you think about immediately after the election day in 2016, the story at least about what was happening on Facebook was Macedonian teenagers sharing false news to try to make money. And then, there were the, then more information came out about Russia and what the IRA Internet research, research Agency had done on our platform and how they had spread extremist content and polarizing content on the platform, and then we had all the Cambridge Analytica work, yep. um, or controversy, scandal, whatever topic word de jour you wanna use. So we look at this in five main ways when we're thinking about it. First is what can we do to take down fake accounts? Most bad actors are not using their real identities to spread this information. Mm-hmm. So the more that we can do to better identify what is a fake account, and when we say fake account, a real person could be behind it. I could be behind that account, but I could be instead of of being who I am, which is a woman who lives in Washington, D.C., I could be pretending to be somebody in London who says that she's part of the Conservative Party and is trying to influence what is happening there. That is a fake account because I am not accurately representing who I am, and that was a lot of the activity that we ended up seeing from the Internet Research Agency and others. So the work around fake accounts is some of the most important work that we can do. Then there's all the work around false news. There's some content that we'll take down. If you're giving the wrong date of the election, or you know, Republicans vote Tuesday, Democrats vote Wednesday, we're taking that content down. Misinformation is where I think there's been a lot of robust discussion and a lot more that needs to be had. We believe in reducing it um, and giving people more information and context um, into that information. There's a lot more work that we need to do in terms of speeding up our detection and our work that we do with fact checkers. We've brought more transparency to political and issue ads. Um, so now, if, um, if you are in another country, you cannot run those ads targeting the United States. You have to be using US dollars, and you have to be located in the US. There's a lot of work around disrupting bad actors, and I think one of the, you know, we talk a lot about foreign actors, but a lot of work, and frankly, a harder question is domestic actors who might be trying to disrupt, um, disrupt an election, pretending they, you know, who, they aren't who they say they are, also pushing some of this divisive content. Does it matter and should our reaction be different if it is a domestic actor versus a foreign actor, which is a really fascinating question. Um, And then finally, there is still work that we're trying to do around civic engagement, Mm -hmm. reminding people how to register to vote, Um, election day reminders. We did a lot of work with the secretaries of states um, for providing that information. So we're, we're looking at, so election security, sometimes you can easily fall just into the what are you doing to try to stop foreign actors, yep. which is super important. But we really think you've got to look across it, um, all those different Let parts. me ask you
2: a question on fake accounts to deal with a question that I think goes partly in bucket one of yours and bucket four. So if I work for the Russian IRA and I say my name is Bob from Tennessee and Donald Trump is Satan, you knock that down because my name is Igor and I live in St. Petersburg. I'm not Bob from Tennessee. But... Let's say I say, my name is Igor, and I live in St. Petersburg, and I have a Facebook account, and I work for the IRA, and I put up something saying, Trump is Satan, or Joe Biden is Satan. That's fine, right?
1: Um, you're not going to be able to run ads doing that. But, but if I you can organically... post it as organic content? Yes. Even, um, even if I work for the IRA? And, where, and the attack the that we've is taken the, uh, there... IRA uh, <laughs> the Russian troll farm. <laughs> um, but, and the tax that we've taken there is provide more transparency on pages so that you know where the admins, the countries that the admins are from... Um, it, for, that are running that page. So you can see, you could go to that page and if you're getting that content, you can see that page was created on this date, and it has admins from these countries um, including there. But this is, I think, again, an open question as we continue to work through these problems and debate them and why we can't be doing this on our own yep. and why we need to be working with the governments and, and third party um, folks and academics who are researching these things is debating these questions and having the question of, should you allow it at all? Is transparency the best solution? Is it just giving more context as as to who they are? And these are all the things that we continue to to grapple with and think about.
2: Alright, well that leads Ambassador Lute. Should they allow it at all? I mean, should they allow Igor in St. Petersburg to say that Trump or Biden is Satan?
4: Um, I think if Igor represents himself as Igor... and he's not buying ads, then Igor is Igor. Uh, And I actually think there may be some value in the Igors of the world identifying themselves and trying to make their case. Um, Let me just add, though, that I think there's another way to catalog this problem or organize this problem. Jay offered a three-part sort of functional approach, right? I think you can also think about this, especially as we now have a date for the next event, right? So November 2020. (laughs) You can organize this before the vote, Mm during the vote and after the vote. And then think about how Jay's functional uh, vulnerabilities yep. apply. So we're in phase one now. We're in the before-the-vote phase. And here, uh, parties, uh, candidates can be uh, influenced by outside, uh, outside influencers. Uh, opinion uh, can be broadly uh, attempted to be influenced, right? Uh, you can influence uh, voter registration before the vote in a very sophisticated way to either uh, suppress the vote in some areas. So, for example, if you uh, did a layout of swing states uh, and you wanted to influence one candidate versus another candidate, you could manipulate the voter registration databases, which are just databases like many other databases hanging on the Internet, uh, and manipulate them so that voters registered for one party or another had trouble actually voting on voting day. So, for example, change the middle initial of a voter's uh, data in a state voter registration database. Now the driver's license on voting day does not match um, the voter registration role, and the individual is denied a ballot. So you can, you can manipulate this process in advance. On the day of voting, you can also, I think, uh, there's at least a vulnerability, and that is that some of our states, about a third of our states, are voting jurisdictions, of which there are over 9,000, by the way, um, and there are probably one or two here in Aspen itself. right? Uh, they all choose the method by which the vote is actually cast. Right? About a third of our votes are still cast electronically on push-button machines, That are instantly tallied by way of uh, online connections to a uh, a larger database. And those online connections, like all online connections, are vulnerable, vulnerable to manipulation. We're actually a little better off and less vulnerable in this, the day of the vote itself, because of this very distributed, decentralized. Uh, approach in our voting system, right? So it's it's gonna be hard to manipulate the results of a presidential election if you have to figure out how to attack 9,000 different entities. Yeah. Um, although again, you could you could target this a little better. And then after the vote, right? The tallying of the vote could be manipulated. Much of that is done online. Uh, and then the announcement of the result. Could be uh, could be manipulated and increasingly may be manipulated with fake videos and so forth. So if you think about this, we are already in a vulnerable period in the 16 months leading up to uh, December or November 2020.
2: So in case the rest of you haven't been diagramming, we now have 45 different categories. <laughs> Secretary Johnson has laid out infrastructure, exfiltration, and misinformation as three big categories. Katie has broken down the third category into five different categories of fake accounts, election attitudes, misinformation, issue ads, and civic engagement. So we have three times five in each of them. And then Ambassador Lute has very smartly laid it out into three different time frames. So 45 different categories. Secretary
3: Johnson, you want to jump in and say which is the most well, important? Well, during the 2016 campaign, and I, here I go again, I'm looking <laughs> backward, I know,
1: um,
3: we – we were very careful. We were walking a very fine line in our public messaging. Uh, on the one hand, I and others were trying to highlight the threat that we were seeing uh, to encourage state election officials to come in. But we also didn't want to discourage people from voting. And we also didn't yep. want to be sending yep. the signal that we think that the vote is going to be manipulated because one of the candidates was saying the exact same thing. And so we kept saying in our talking points, you know, 9,000 different jurisdictions, et cetera, et cetera. The reality, and Doug, you touched on this, the reality of the way our politics works, given the Electoral College, is you could only, it only takes the manipulation of a few key precincts in a few key states to perhaps swing a national election. (coughs) And the writers of the show House of Cards figured that out a couple of seasons ago. And it wouldn't be that hard for somebody, you know, in real life to figure out. Well,
4: if I could add, the the Russians now have a case study, right? I mean, they they broadly attempted to penetrate and test the defenses in our election system in 2016. And you can be sure that they learned from this. This was a Russian military operation. So they didn't do this as a one-off deal. They did this as a probing attack. And I think it's safe to assume that when they come back, It'll be in a more targeted, more sophisticated way because they learned about our system. Sorry.
1: No, yes. I was just going to say not to multiply your forty-five by even more. Please but do. You have all the primaries. February third is when the Iowa caucuses happen. Mm-hmm. So you have every single one of these phases, <clears throat> also leading up throughout the primaries that we have to make sure that we're not taking our eye off of and trying to see if there's things that we can be learning from there that then can be applied to the general election as well.
2: I want to move into coordination, but before they do that. It sounds like the consensus up here is that the thing we need to be most worried about is manipulating the vote tallies. Is that correct? N-
3: no, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think a lot of good work has been done at the state level mm-hmm. by state election officials over the last two and a half years to focus on this. They, you know, the, Alex Padilla in California, yeah. um, New Mexico – The the uh, there was a candidate for Michigan's secretary of state. She ran on this issue, Uh, and so I think a lot of good work is being done at the state level uh, in paper ballots, redundancy, end to end. Pretty soon, you're going to be able to track your vote like you track a UPS package, and you know where it's been tallied and, and, and so forth. So a lot of good work's been being done there. So I think we're. I think we're in, better, we're in a better shape than we were in 2016, though I haven't been reading intelligence reports for the last two years. I only read David Sanger now. And so I, my, my belief is that the real threat lies in the broader attack on, on, you know, on speech and political debate. Okay,
2: excellent. I want to move to coordination, but first, Kate, I need to say that we have something funny in common here and that one of my dear friends in college rigged my college student government election, manipulated the vote totals to give all the votes to the humor magazine, was caught, I defended him from getting expelled, and then he became a top engineer at your company.
1: Um... <laughs> <laughs> Telling Great. me that on stage. <laughs> no, at least
2: we know where he is. I know, yeah. <laughs> the guy was so smart. All right.
1: See, but he's helping us to know what, how, what people might do, so that we can be smarter he work there and try anymore. to detect it. Oh, well. Yeah, there
2: you go. Um, but let's talk up. about coordination, because I think it's really important that we talk about the right way for the private sector and the public sector to coordinate. So let's begin with the comments that your friend Mr. Zuckerberg made um, on Wednesday here, where he talked about the responsibilities of Facebook and the responsibilities of the government. And it was a little bit controversial, but I thought it made a lot of sense. And he said, look, we are responsible for certain things, but if you're going to run an op against the IRA, that's the government's work. So explain to the people who weren't here what exactly he said, explain that argument, and then let's work through it a little bit.
1: Yeah, so we, as we've increasingly been trying to work through these issues, um... There's, there's a limit to what, to what we can do. So, for instance, um, when it, and th- these are some of the areas where we think that there needs to be regulation. Um, on the political ad side, for instance, I can know and I can verify that the advertiser is who he says he is because I have an ID. I can verify that an address is deliverable and that a phone number, there's somebody on the other end that picks it up. But we don't have the capability nor the power of the law in order to require those advertisers to tell us who is actually behind that entity, who is actually funding that entity. I can know that the credit card and the billing address is in the U.S., but I can't know um, how that money got to that place that is paying that credit card bill. And so those are the areas, some of the areas where we particular need um, to work together with with the government and others on this. In addition, we can, if we see SPAD activity happening on our platform, we can kick them off our platform, but the government is going to have many other levers at their disposal um, for trying to punish state actors who might be trying to to influence our elections. And then, two, on the political speech side, and I think this is, I mean, this is what we saw is going to be the most difficult um, because given the free speech um, fo- you know, foundation of our country, um, the government is likely going to be less inclined um, to say how speech should be regulated online but and that is one where we're in the middle and the very start of a public debate around how we should be handling some of these things, whether it is deep fakes or misinformation and, yep. and and how we should be handling that. And so um, so Mark and beca- Mark's view and what we've been trying to do is be a lot more um, forward leaning in terms of talking to governments about um, where we think that we need additional help and where our capabilities end and where we think we need to partner with others.
2: And do you think you get what you need from the federal government?
1: Um, it's increasingly getting it's increasingly getting a lot better. I think one of the um, difficulties and that we continue to work through is what is the right information to share? What is actually needed to act upon these things? How quickly can we move and make sure that all of the different partners have the right infrastructure in place and people to be able to, because this stuff moves fast on the internet. You don't have, it, it, you know, and it's going to happen at all hours and on the weekend. They do not take vacations. Um, so thinking through how, how do we um, continue to improve on the communication and the sharing of data and, and also making sure that we're not having any unintended consequences from moving too fast as well. Can
2: I, can I rephrase that question with an arrow attached? Sure. I have interviewed lots of executives and people at Facebook who have offered a little bit of resentment over the lack Feeling like they didn't get what they did, should have gotten from the federal government. Certainly, when it involved the IRA uh, operations, they didn't get what they needed in 2016. Though I have also heard that it is getting better. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment? That there may have been some issues then. There may be some resentments, but things are working well now.
1: Yeah, and that's I, I was trying not to relitigate 2016 and kind of look, but I think I think that's 100% right. I think that you know we pulled together um, some working groups in the lead up to the midterms to try to work through um, some of the issues or or things that we all, you know, experienced in 2016 to think about how can we get better for the midterms and are continuing to do that as we look towards 2020.
3: Great. The government government rightly should be extremely cautious about going down the road of policing speech Mm -hmm. or aiding others in policing speech. Think about what certain government actors would do with the authority to tell Facebook or somebody else, that's fake news. You need to take that down. I'd be out of or, a job.
2: If the government could do that, Wired Magazine be shut down tomorrow if the current government could do that. So I'm grateful. Thank you, both of you. Ambassador Liu, you want to jump in here? Tell us about the dynamics between the government and Facebook from your perspective.
4: <clears throat> well, I don't have firsthand opinions on that, uh, but I, I thought I'd just offer a, a, a slight broadening of this conversation so that we think for a second that this is not just a bilateral issue. This is not just Russia as an attacker, right? We're kind of fixated on that shiny object. But China, Iran, North Korea also have state-led, meaningful capabilities in this realm. And America is not the only democracy that's under assault and vulnerable. I mean, we've seen among some of our closest European NATO allies uh, manipulation of the Brexit vote or at least influence in the Brexit vote Uh, influence in a a referendum in Spain, Um, even more boldly than the sorts of things we've been talking about, Vladimir Putin funds Marie Le Pen's uh, National Front Party uh, in, uh, in France. So the assault on our democracy does mean this for us locally, this topic. Right? But we should appreciate that democracy, even outside the United States, is under assault by a lot of bad actors.
1: And this is where we've been seeing a lot of wanting to make sure, to your point, everyone is very fixated on Russia. And now everyone thinks Russia is trying to infiltrate their election. But every country really does have unique um, challenges um, to their own democracy and different laws. So, you know, not all countries ban foreign donations in their in their elections. Um, We ran into an interesting case with the EU elections of we decided to not allow cross-border advertising because some countries within the EU allow foreign funding of candidates. And so it could be very easy for a state actor to fund that candidate and then they run ads from that country into let's say Germany or France. Um, and so, as, to your point, you know, we definitely do need to look at this beyond just the United States um, and how this plays out in, in, across the world. Secretary Johnson, can
2: I, can I ask you a question about one of the, one of the big themes of this week or one of the big conversations has been antitrust. It's come, up, it's come up almost every day in some event I've participated in. And one of the arguments against breaking up the big tech companies would be it's much easier for our government to coordinate with one company than with eight and as we look at the future of elections, it will be much simpler for the Department of Homeland Security in 2020 to just deal with Facebook, which can also coordinate across Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, than if you were to split it into four different parts. Or the same thing with, with Google. Is that, is that a legitimate argument?
3: It may be easier to work with one company at a time, but you're just – I suspect that if we focused on Facebook, the bad actors would simply go elsewhere – Mm-hmm. Um, and be chasing shadows, in a sense. There needs to be, uh, you know, we all hate the phrase public-private partnership, but there needs to be more of a collaborative approach, which I don't believe, and I'm not an antitrust expert, which I don't believe would present antitrust concerns just in the way collaborating on aviation safety doesn't create, you know. So you're, uh,
2: you're neutral <clears throat> on, on the question. You're neutral on the question of whether it's easier for the government to work with five large companies
3: as opposed to 50 small companies. I, I think it is. I, I'm sure it is easier to work with one company versus 50 smaller companies. I don't know. I don't know that it would be as. I don't know how effective that would be if you focus on one big mm-hmm. actor.
2: Okay. Let me ask. Let me ask another another large right? Am question. Am I wrong or right?
1: No, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, we also. You know, the more that Facebook, the blue app does, we're also increasingly looking at, okay, is that moving to Instagram? And there's some countries where Instagram has a higher user base than um, Facebook even does. And then to your point, are you even pushing that down? You know, as part of this the work that we do as well, Microsoft's part of it, Twitter's a part of it, Google um, is a part of it too, and I think we need to continue to be thinking about how can we help the smaller companies who may not have as many resources to to put into this um, as well regardless of whether they're owned by us or not.
3: Let's not forget, and I know Doug will agree with this, let's not forget that when you're talking about defense, um, the most effective defense when you're dealing with nation state actors, is to make the bad behavior cost prohibitive and to provide sufficient deterrence because nation states, at least the rational ones, all have certain things in common. They will respond to things that are cost prohibitive. They will, if if you make the behavior cost prohibitive, they will cease the activity, whether you're a communist regime, a dictatorship, or a democracy. And so, and Russia, unfortunately, is still a work in progress. We saw that live and on stage yesterday.
2: So how so, do we make it cost effective So two quick
3: factors here, right? I mean, I think Jay's on to something
4: that in classic sense, deterrence theory, right, depends upon uh, placing at risk something your potential opponent values, Yep. right? So in the nuclear realm, that's pretty clear. You don't want to be attacked and so forth, right? And deterrence in the conventional realm of, of armament and the nuclear realm of armament is very well developed. It's a 56-year-old uh, the theory, set of theories and so forth. And frac- frankly, it's... You know, it's got quite a body of success, right? The challenge of this arena is that if it is difficult to detect who the attacker is, then you don't know how to put in place this calculus that would place that attacker at risk, you see? So the attacker in 2016, I'm sure the IRA, the Russian government, assumed that they would be anonymous, assumed that they would not be detected. Right? or at a minimum that the attack would be very ambiguous, and they would not be able to attribute the attack on our election system to the Russian government, as we've now done. But as it, as it turned out, the Russians were Russian, okay? and they were a little heavy-handed, and they were a little sloppy, and they left digital fingerprints on their attack, which resulted in uh, DHS and our intelligence community being able to attribute an attack which was designed to be anonymous. So the first thing here in terms of bolstering deterrence is to increase our capacity to attribute, right? Because then we can begin to set in place this cost-benefit calculus with potential opponents. And, And, you know, if we just think about Russia, there are information vulnerabilities in Putin's regime between Putin... his intelligence services, and the Russian oligarchs who keep Putin in power, there are information vulnerabilities that he would rather not have disclosed that we know. So I think there's a potential here to fight fire with fire and establish a bit of a deterrence relationship. Not saying that we're going to, you know... uh, the shutdown the air traffic control system in Russia or maybe the electrical grid, which has been in the news lately. But let's, value, let's put it at risk something that Vladimir Putin really values,
2: like his finances. So you, you think that right now the U.S. government should do something like disclose Vladimir Putin's finances, both to send a signal to him not to attack 2020, but also to send a signal to any other country that might no, want to I, attack
4: us? I would hold it in advance. I would not disclose it, but I would let him know that if this, if you interfere in 2020, then that.
3: You would let and him that know. that, the consequences. Neither one of us is in a position to know everything the U.S. government has done right. since we left yeah. That's in, fair in 2017. Um, I mean, all I will say in answer to that is you have to create sufficient deterrence. And but we've also seen, Jay, I mean, just, you know, over the last 24 hours,
4: In the G-20 meeting in Japan, our president sort of was jokingly commenting about Russian interference. Uh, And it was, you know, it was a a matter of humor between him and President Putin. That didn't suggest to me that some sort of deterrence equation is in, in place.
1: And an interesting thing just on deterrence, especially as we think about misinformation and how we're trying to think about this on Facebook, is that when we put deterrence in to try to make it harder for bad actors to do whatever they want to try to do, that means that we're also needing to put that friction on known actors as well, Um, as well. And we are requiring people who, who who are perfectly good in their intent of what they're trying to do, but because we need to have deterrence in place to try to find the unknown actors, we've also got to apply this to known actors too. Um, And that's been an interesting tension, just like with political advertising um, and that transparency. um, Because we are requiring people to give us an ID and prove they live in the United States, we're doing that for everyone.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, celebrated its 70th anniversary this spring. Created in the aftermath of World War II, the 29-member organization is the world's strongest military alliance. It's prevented conflict in Europe since its creation. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg points to certain tactics.
4: So deterrence is working. That doesn't mean that Russia behaves exactly as we want, but it means that Since we established NATO, no NATO
5: ally has suffered a military attack.
0: But the Alliance faces new threats like cyber warfare that are putting it to the test. Hear more from Stoltenberg and Aspen Ideas To Go. Search NATO Chief to find the episode in your favorite podcast player. Let's get back to our featured conversation about election security. Here's Nick Thompson.
2: Let me, ask, let me ask about this, because one of the most interesting policy changes at Facebook over the last year has been the public statements about the prioritization of privacy. And to me, that's great value. I value my privacy, I certainly. If anybody wants to send me Vladimir Putin's finances, please do it on Signal, which we'll delete after a day.
3: <laughs>
2: but privacy is at tension with safety here and security, right? The best way, you found the fingerprints of the Russians because you had all of the data. And if Facebook has moved to a much more private system, you might not have had the data. So
1: this is where we are now needing to also think about what are the um, deterrents that we can put in from a product perspective when thinking about behavior, not necessarily content. And so we've dealt a lot with this around WhatsApp. Um, and the elections in Brazil, Indonesia, and India where that content's fully encrypted. We can't see what's being, what's being shared. It's just a phone number. And so one of the most powerful things that we did was limited the number of forwards um, that That's content great. could be forwarded um, down to five. Um, and so we're needing to think about those deterrents as well that we need to put into place to limit the spread of some of this, of this information or the activity.
2: Secretary Johnson, it's not just Facebook that is prioritizing privacy. It's the whole social media ecosystem.
3: Does this worry you at all? Uh, No. I I view privacy as a security issue as well as a privacy issue. It's the security of our data. It's the security of our lives. uh, And so, you know, in a a very large respect, I'm pleased to see Facebook and the others moving in this direction. No, I think – you know, individual privacy is
4: who we are. I mean, this is fundamental to the democracy here and, and, and the relationship between the government and the individual. Uh, and it is, it's one of the pillars of our democracy. So, sure, we have to pay attention to that.
2: All right, we all, we all agree. Let's talk a little bit about um, what we're looking at, what we're seeing, and what we fear for 2020. We're going to talk about that for a couple minutes and then get your questions ready. So what is the most interesting threat? Or what is the threat that has not appeared yet but that you worry about?
1: Um, Well, there's a lot of them. (laughs) Um, And the way we're thinking about this, too, is we brainstorm and do a lot of tabletop exercises to try to think of all of the things that we think could happen, but then we also want to make sure we're structured for the things that we aren't prepared for, because they're usually never very black and white. Deep fakes and manipulated video, uh, something already happening, but very much on on top of mind. We are starting to see, you know, in Australia, there was misinformation being spread on Messenger um, around the Labour Party and whether or not they were going to introduce a death tax um, in that election. And if you think back to elections a decade ago and you had email forwards and you would have no idea where the origin of that email forward was or who had created the content in that, um, how do we think about that um, on Vectors like WhatsApp and mm-hmm. and Messenger, and what can we do to better? Um, again, taking some of those, you know, the product changes like we did on on WhatsApp um, for those, um, and then yeah, a lot of conversation and thinking through um, um, both what foreign actors might be doing, and, and paying attention to elections like those in the Ukraine um, to try to get a sense of anything new that they might be that they might be doing. How does this manifest um, itself? Um, um, in imagery is it false news is it still polarization is it something is it something new um, but also how do we define this in a domestic sense um like i mentioned earlier um is is it different because if you look purely at behavior what is legitimate online campaign organizing when you look at the behavior of that um it can very much mirror what you saw what you see from uh these coordinated inauthentic behavior campaigns yep. And what they're trying to do. And so how do we how do we identify between those when we're looking just at behavior and not content?
3: Emerging threats. So I worry about the cybersecurity of individual campaigns. Mm-hmm. I believe yep. that some campaigns are more sophisticated than others. When it comes to their cybersecurity, I believe that in the rush of a campaign, people who work for campaigns are not always thinking about the cybersecurity of of their data, of their communications. And, you know, campaigns are very much kind of on the fly. And so, and infiltrating data of campaigns did not start in 2016. The weaponization of it in the U.S. started in 2016. But infiltrating a campaign by a foreign actor is not new.
2: Okay. Um, let's move to audience questions. And I would like to say that one of the neatest threats I've seen is in the Ukraine and Russia, where apparently Russian operatives are calling Ukrainian politicians, pretending to be donors or ambassadors, recording snippets of their voice, and then using that to help make their deepfake videos. That is only to say, if you're a public official, when you ask your question, you may want to ask in any squeaky voice, because we are recording.
6: Um, <laughs> let's
2: start right up here in the front.
6: All
5: right. Uh, my name is Joyce, and I'm going to go on a, out on a limb here, and this is scary for me to ask, because it seems like um i must be way out of line here but the question i have and the concerns i have are a little more insidious it's more domestic than uh international and the fact that um when i it, and again it goes it goes with um surveillance capitalism and with facebook especially um like You gather so much information, millions and millions of information from individuals in this country, and the way that it has been used, again, I might be misinformed on this, but um, I'm of the impression that twice now Facebook got in trouble for all of the information they used, and then they had done research on it with behavioral manipulation, bragged about it, and then realized, oh, uh, this must not be (laughs) okay with the American public. And then, in that, um, from what I understand, during the uh, campaigns, you, you were definitely bi- Facebook was definitely bipartisan in this, in that they offered it both to Hillary and Trump, in the sense that staff went, Hillary, I, from what I understand, did not accept it, but Trump did accept the invite to um, take on many Facebook staff members to come in and work on his campaign. In that the campaigns used with the amount of information that you had gathered, um, you were able to use that in ads to help in the the most minutia of of information gathered in that, and and I understand. Ads. Yeah, I let's, mean, you know, let's we've let been Katie doing for because We're, gonna,
2: we're pretty short on time, yeah, and no, no, that's no, no, two very, sure.
1: important so, very so very fair questions. And there's a lot of changes that that we have made um, in in both of these areas. On the privacy side, this is why we are continuing to move towards more of showing you, giving you the ability to see all of your data, the ability to clear the history of the data that that you do have. Um, as Mark mentioned the other day, I don't I don't know if you were there or not, um, but because of the amount of it, one of our Bigger struggles as well as making it easier and intuitive for consumers in which in which to do that with, with the data. In terms of help to campaigns, so we had people that were supporting the Trump campaign, the Hillary campaign, many campaigns, up and down, up and down the ballot. Um, the campaigns did choose to use the platforms differently. Um, and there's many stories that have been written about that many in Wired um, of how the campaigns had done that. We have now, over the last two years though, we have shifted um, some of our work there so that we can better scale that out. We have a lot more of it available publicly. We are not having people as regularly go to the campaigns, but we are still providing customer support because they still want to know how can we how can we run an ad? How do these new tools new tools work that, that you may have? Um, and we always continually look at what are what are additional things that we may need to do um, to continue to like do we need how, how do we need to continue to think about treating political and issue ads differently? We've done the transparency work, um, we've done more work so you know if it's a custom audience. So it's it's stuff that we continue to, to work on, but My final thing I'll just say, though, and this is another example of where there's a limit of what we as Facebook can do, is I do think that there needs to be more discussion around the data that campaigns have and political parties have, how do they share it, where are they able to to use it or not, because it is not just at a place like Facebook that they're doing it. This type of micro-targeting was done before Facebook even existed in the 2002 campaign where they were using that data to better understand should I run an ad on the phishing network versus ABC because it was going to be a lot cheaper for me to reach my core voters on the phishing network.
2: All right, great. And the gentleman in the blue shirt in the middle, please. I just want to confirm something
3: I thought I heard the panel say, uh, and if that's the case, fine. why? Are we saying that the United States has not carried out the same type of activity with respect to foreign nations, and that we are only considering using it if things um, go awry again in 2020? And and I guess I. That can't it can't be right, but uh, See, no, that's uh, a good question. Let's no, that's not what I intended to say. Uh, you should assume that our government has all sorts of offensive cyber capabilities, and you should assume that uh, covert action uh, has been something that has been an arsenal in the U.S. weaponry for. A very very long time. Why haven't we, as a result of what we've been going through recently, um, done it to them, um, release Putin's financial information or whatever uh, at an even higher level to make <clears throat> uh, to try to explain to him? Um, you, you do you this to ask us. that of the current
0: administration. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is no, no administration. We really
3: don't. We're not in a position to know everything that the, that the government has done uh, over the last two years. So, uh, Thank you.
7: In 2018, there were a couple of trials for mobile internet voting uh, in West Virginia in the primary, also in the general election. Yep. Uh, I think uh, both seem to work just fine. <clears throat> Recently this year, Denver, locally here, uh, had online mobile internet voting. My question is, with today's technologies, including cryptography, blockchain, things like that, where you can, as you said, track your vote all the way to uh, being counted, uh, do you think mobile voting can help us secure our voting security system?
3: Uh, perhaps. I'm not. A, I'm not an expert on voting technology. Uh, I, I do believe in redundancy. I do believe in audit trails, not necessarily paper, uh, and I do believe in the ability of a citizen to, to track their vote, when, you know, from beginning to end. And I'm, and I'm pleased that state election officials, and they still view this as their province, the way our democracy works, are, are focused on this. For a long time, we allowed ourselves to exist in a very arcane, primitive world when it came to how we count votes. And over the last two years, I think a lot of state election officials have woke up to the threat and are now addressing it, and the public they serve are, is demanding it. Uh, gentleman in green in the center, <clears throat> just going to
7: draw on a little bit of Article Three experience. Um, I'm a judge in Los Angeles. You know, it, it strikes me that one of the important issues is not so much the integrity of our ballot process, which is critical, but the appearance of the integrity of that process. And what scares me is that we have a, an election that is counted correctly, the ballots are counted correctly, but there's enough gray area in terms of the argument that it wasn't done correctly, where the entire legitimacy of the process calls is called into question. You know, appearance is everything. So to me, not having paper ballots as a backup is, it just makes no sense. The other thing is, in terms of NATO, perhaps we need something like uh, Article Five applied to uh, cyber attacks on the election process of our, of our allies.
4: I very much share your concern that it may not be the actual changing of the vote that, is, that, that affords the greatest vulnerability here, but, but rather the perception yep. that over, over time erodes the confidence of us Americans in the process itself, right? It's kind of more the psychology and the confidence in our in our system, and, and that's why I'm concerned about uh, things like uh, manipulation of the voter registration databases, which cause people to take the time out of the day to go to the polling place only to be turned away, right? That's a pretty emotional event, right? Or manipulation of the tallies on the back end, which could impart a lot of doubt with regard to NATO and Article Five. In one, qu- just quick. Aside here, so this is the part of the Washington Treaty, the NATO Treaty, that says an attack on one is an attack on all. Uh, and before the 2016 experience, um, NATO leaders agreed that a cyber attack could rise to the level of Article Five and trigger uh, a, a response. So they've somewhat updated the 1949
3: Treaty uh, to account for cyber. So the the issue you raise is not one that began in 2016. I mean, how many of us in this room? believe that the vote count for president in the year 2000 Mm. was spot on accurate. (laughs) Um, So the integrity of the way we count votes in this country has been a problem for a very long time, in large part because of the thousands of different ways in which we count votes across this country. The issue of whether a cyber attack should be considered an act of war warranting a military response is one I testified about last year in the House Armed Services Committee, and the basic conclusion of all the best legal scholars is if a cyber attack has a kinetic effect, like the destruction of a building or the taking of human life, there can be a kinetic response in kind. My one addition to that is that, in my judgment, the United States should not reach for an overly aggressive definition of what constitutes an act of war, which could be used against us.
6: Uh, the
2: gentleman on the far side, please. By the way, I think the vote count in 2000 was 5 to 4, properly counted.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I will remember that comment as the best comment this weekend. Um, so Mark Zuckerberg said something that I thought was interesting that you guys were talking about here, which is that big is better. We should deal with one big company or three big companies rather than 50 small ones. But I think with big comes responsibility. And one of the things that he seemed to talk about was the idea that, information should be as broadly shared as possible um, rather than the other way around, which is to say, in order for you to speak, it's sort of like me getting on an airplane, I have to prove who I am and what I'm doing. If I'm going to go online to a bank, I have to prove who I am and what I'm doing. Is there another way to think about this where these bad actors, in order to post something, you have to say who you are, prove you know I'm not a robot, That stuff that we do, but prove who you are And what you're doing, label it and say, this is news. This is analysis. This is satire. This gets into the whole, you know, sort of the fake video sort of thing. But And rather than have Facebook have 30,000 people go through a billion things, instead on the front end, put some obligation on people. Because I think the security and privacy thing is kind of backwards.
1: So you you bring up a couple of points there. Um, On that latter one that you mentioned, this has been a big struggle for us in the political ad space, Because I can ask you to tell me that information, but then we've got to validate it. And we've got to make sure that it's accurate. Uh, We ran into some of those issues with asking people to provide disclaimers for political ads for 2018. Um, and we had it as a free form one because, you know, typically with campaign finance, um, folks knew what disclaimer they needed to do. And we wanted to provide those, you know, the, the flexibility to qualify with the many different rules across the 9,000 jurisdictions that they have of how they have to disclose this, this work. Um, and so that is the struggle we've had because it's not enough to just ask them in which to, to do that. We've got to make sure are they actually giving us accurate information because a bad guy is going to lie they 're not going to they 're not going to give us the the truth um, to your to your first point I think one thing as well of what Mark was talking about in terms of um, the antitrust stuff and all that and I can only just speak to the election space but by us having all the companies together, all of the the 40 plus teams and the 500 full-time employees that we have working just on elections, plus the 30,000 safety and security folks, um, we are able to better um, um, have those lessons and and those resources to be able to apply across all four of you know our our platforms versus just just one, um, because we've also seen with other platforms that aren't owned by us and don't have as many resources, they're not able to d- to necessarily do as much.
2: All right, we have time for one more question. We have thirty seconds.
4: <laughs> no pressure.
3: Could you just could you just quickly give us the state of uh, being able to? How many uh, polling places will have paper ballots or
0: an, an equivalent uh, way to audit the original ballot?
3: Uh, I don't know the number there is a very good there have been a number of studies about election cybersecurity now there's a very good one in particular done by the Center for American Progress about a year ago that goes through state by state how they count votes how they're doing in terms of their cybersecurity and gives them a grade that outlines all of this and it's public it's a public thing I'm sure it's online Uh, Center for American Progress
2: All right, that wraps it up. Please volunteer your local polling place in the next election. Do not set up any uh, botnets, and thank you very much for our fantastic panel.
0: Jay Johnson served as Homeland Security Secretary from 2013 to 2017. Doug Lute was a US Ambassador to NATO and served on the National Security Council under President Obama. Katie Harbath is Public Policy Director for Global Elections at Facebook. Nick Thompson is editor-in-chief of Wired and a contributor for CBS News. Their conversation was held June 28th at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Brettman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Milgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.